Well, good morning and welcome. We gather together to worship the risen Jesus Christ. He's not only raised from the dead himself, but is the one who raises all who will rise from the dead. He is the God of the resurrection. And so as we gather together, many of us grieving uh, for lost loved ones, we've had a, a very difficult last few weeks uh, with loved ones going home to, to be with the Lord. They're not having a hard time. They're having a glorious time. Uh, but it's hard for us when we remain behind and miss them. Uh, and that not only do, will God raise those who have trusted in him in the last day, but that he is the God of the resurrection today. That today, this day, all around the world, there are people who were dead in sins and trespasses who are coming to life in Christ. That God is doing that. He is at work accomplishing that. And so we gather together to praise him, to thank him, to ask this giver of life, this God of the resurrection, to continue to enliven us. Perhaps you've, you've come this morning and, and you're just barely here. First, I want you to know we're glad you're here. And you're in exactly the right place if you are weary and bone tired. Because this is the place where God's people gather. Not to fix ourselves, but to receive from God life everlasting, renewal, revival, and encouragement. And so in his name, I welcome you. We are gathered to worship Jesus as the King and the Lord of the resurrection. A couple of ways that you might uh, continue to be involved in those things is that we've just started back to our Sunday school schedule for the, for the school year. So we've got the adults meeting in the Billings room and then the, the uh, babies and the, the preschoolers downstairs. Uh, we'd love to have a class for some of our teenagers. Uh, and so to do that, we need more teachers. And so if you would like to help with that, please talk with Robin. Uh, and then if you're not already coming to the adult Sunday school class, what are you doing? It's awesome. And I know that you can get up that early on Sunday morning because we've just spent the whole summer meeting at 9.30. So you can make it. And, and I don't know about you, but I just love Sinclair Ferguson. The guy who's doing the, the teaching on the Holy Spirit is just blesses my socks off because he's in the Word and showing its relevancy in our life as we get to know the Holy Spirit better together. So let me encourage you. And I know every year I have people who say, well, Pastor, just we're not Sunday school type people. I still have no idea what that means. But, but if that's you, you can change. You can become a Sunday school type person. Just come at nine. And it, it might be a little difficult, but you just keep coming Sunday after Sunday. And before you know it, you're a Sunday school type of person. And so we'd love to have you. Uh, and with that, I'm going to have Carl Huck, who is our chairman of the deacons, come and share an update with you. He's a hard act to follow. So I'm Carl Huck, in case you don't know, and I'm here to speak to you as representative of the Board of Deacons. 
You know, it's hard to believe, but it's that time of year again. The deacons are working on next year's budget. And what we wanted to do is give you a little bit of insight as to how it works um, and also give you an update as to where we stand as a church body. So back in June, we sent a form to all the committee chairs for next year's proposed expenditures. Most returned a budget of uh, equal or maybe a little bit less than last year. So then we go out and we look at all of our fixed expenses. So fixed expenses will include heat, light, uh, salaries, uh, insurance, and we add those in to um, what we think we're going to have to spend for next year. Finally, we look at the recent history of offering. So this is we're now we're on the income side and past yearly trends to estimate what the income is for the coming year. And this is why I'm here. Based on that data, we project a budget would contain a $110,000 deficit. The only way to balance this is to draw from the trust fund, which we do on a somewhat regular basis and to some degree in the past. Um, however, I think we would all agree that this large a deficit is not sustainable. This is a difficult time for churches in general and, and FCCW in particular. And what we're asking for you, from you is prayers as we go through this process, because it is a difficult process. Nobody likes to look at things and say no to anyone. There is no one thing that we're doing here, one committee, one outreach that we're doing that is not worthy, but we have limitations as to what we can do. And we ask for your prayers, and as we go through this process, um, as we uh, present that final budget to the congregation, and as, for the congregation as a whole to prayerfully consider um, how we are going to deal with this. And we thank you very much for those prayers. Thank you, Carl. The last thing by way of announcements is I would encourage you all to come back here this Friday evening. We've got the uh, S'mores and Dogs event uh, here um, on the courtyard here uh, with good weather. Uh, and so we hope to, to be able to see you uh, Friday at 5 o'clock. So with that, let's take a few moments now and prepare our hearts to worship our great God and King. Let's please stand together for the call to worship. We'll find in your order of worship from Psalm 122. I was glad when they said to me, let us go to the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem, built as a city that is bound firmly together, to which the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, as was decreed for Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord. Lord God, you have decreed that we give you thanks. 
And so we desire to give it now gladly, to rejoice together that you are good. You are faithful and true in all of your ways. We thank you and give you praise. We ask now, Lord Jesus, that you would hear our praise because of what you have accomplished for us in your life and your death and your resurrection from the dead. In your name we pray. Amen. Please turn with me in your red hymnal there to hymn number 363. 363, we gather together. You were the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You were the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. With this reminder and call to repentance, please pray with me this prayer in bold from Ezra. That Let's pray together. We have broken faith with our God and have disobeyed his holy commands, but even now there is hope for God's people in spite of our sin. Therefore, let us make a covenant with our God to flee from sin according to the counsel of my Lord and of those who tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. Please take a few moments now and pray silently before the Lord. Just maybe take a phrase or two from this prayer and make it your own.
Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and who, in whose spirit there is no deceit. Lord God, we thank you that you are the one who has forgiven our transgressions. Lord Jesus, you're the one who has kept the law perfectly. In every way that we fail, you have succeeded. And then, just as you promised, you have gone to the cross for us to take upon yourself the punishment, the wrath that we deserve. Lord, we, we praise you and give you thanks. And we ask, Lord, for those that you have blessed us with, those particularly in this congregation, in our families, those with whom we work and play and our neighbors with whom we coexist. Lord, we pray for each of these. You know their hearts. You know their needs. And so we lift them up to you. We pray also, Lord, that you would make us joyful instruments in your hand. That as you call us to love and serve and care for those in which you have brought into our life, Lord, we pray that you would help us to do that, giving you all the honor and glory. We pray particularly for the families um, and individuals who are grieving right now the loss of loved ones. We pray for Andy, for Hilda, for the Frick families and the Maxim families, Lord, for all the Asburys and Coles. Pray, Lord, that you would not only comfort them in their grief, but, Lord, that you would strengthen them, that this would be a season of rejoicing as they discover anew the truth that you really are there in their greatest need. That, that they would test you in the right way in finding that you are true to your word. Lord, that, that they would discover that you indeed are sweet to the taste. That you are loving in all of your ways. And that we can trust you. Lord, we pray for the Ransom family and their work in Italy, and we pray, Father, that you would strengthen them. We pray particularly for their son Luke and his special needs as the world refers to them, but we know that he's exactly the way that you created him for your purposes. And that while he needs more help with getting around or with doing the things of, of life, Lord, that you know every fiber of his body, and we thank you for the provision of a helper there in his preschool to be able to, to be with him. And we pray, Lord, that he would be able to flourish, that, that that family would be encouraged and helped through his being able to be there at preschool. And that for the whole family, Lord, that you would continue to work through them as a testimony to your grace that many there in Italy might come to know you, Christ, through the ransom's work in the mission that you have placed them in there. 
Lord, thank you for the incredible privilege to be able to partner together with them. We pray that you would use that work to your glory. Lord, I pray for our Nana, Sue Holtberg, as she's in the hospital, Lord, that you would give the doctors wisdom to be able to treat her and that she would recover well and quickly. And we thank you for the gift that she is to our family. Lord, in all these things, we praise you and give you thanks. For it's in Christ's name we ask them. Amen. This time we'll receive the offering. Please give joyfully to the Lord. Lord God, who are we that you would enable us to contribute to your work here in Woodstock and Vermont, New Hampshire, and all to the ends of the earth? Lord, we are so grateful to you. Everything that we have comes from you. We ask that you would receive these things now that we give to you as our tithes and offerings. as a testimony to our love for you because you have first loved us. We praise you and give you thanks in Christ's name. Amen. Um, this morning we're using for our affirmation of faith the Nicene Creed. This is a, a summary or a formation of what Christians believe that the scriptures teach, and particularly in these areas of what we believe about God, which I think is particularly important as we are looking at later today uh, our duty to love and serve and delight in God. What is it that we believe about him? Uh, and so let me ask you to uh, read with me the, the portion in bold, but again, not just to go through the motions. If, uh, if this is something that you're not sure of, just, just listen. But let me also encourage you that we have brothers and sisters in places in the world like China and Niger that to say these words out loud in public could mean their incarceration, could mean their death. That this is not a triviality. This is not just something that we do as tradition. 
but I'm asking you, what is it that you believe about the most important things in life that we might respond with conviction and truth? And so, Christian, what is it that we believe? We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried, and the third day he rose again according to the scriptures and ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he shall come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead, whose kingdom shall have no end. And we believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshiped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And we believe in one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church, we acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and we look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. Amen. Please stand together to sing Gloria Patri. Please remain standing for the reading of God's holy, sacred word. This from Deuteronomy chapter 26. This day the Lord your God commands you to do these statutes and rules. You shall therefore be careful to do them with all your heart and with all your soul. You have declared today that the Lord is your God and that you will walk in his ways and keep his statutes and his commandments and his rules and will obey his voice. And the Lord has declared today that you are a people for his treasured possession, as he has promised you that you are to keep all his commandments, and that he will set you in praise and in fame and in honor high above all nations that he has made, that you shall be a people holy to the Lord God, your God, as he has promised. Praise be to Christ. Let's sing together hymn number 528, My Faith Looks Up to Thee.
Thank you. You may be seated. Please take out your Bible and open with me to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20 in the pew Bible there in front of you. That is on page 61. Page 61. I'm reading chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. You'll say, wait a minute, Pastor, you read those same verses last week. Yes. And I plan on reading them the next 10 weeks. Uh, we'll then look at a particular verse. But again, I want you to see the context of this. What we tend to do is take commandments piecemeal, right? This one, oh, I like that. Okay, I, can, I think I can do that this week. I'll, I'll deal with this and, and disregard the others. But that's not how they're given, and that's not how they work. So let me read God's Word, chapter 20, verses 1 to 21. Hear now God's holy and errant word. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his manservant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound and the trumpet, and the mountains smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off. And they said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen. But do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you and that you may not sin. 
the people stood far off, while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Oh Lord, we thank you. We thank you for this word that you've given to us, for the reality that you have drawn close to us, that you've spoken directly to us, that you've given us all these words that we might better understand that you and you alone have redeemed us out of slavery to sin, just as you did for Israel to bring them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us. O Holy Spirit, we pray that you would enlighten our minds and awaken our hearts, that we might see these truths as you, Lord Christ, have accomplished all these things for us so that we might walk together with you as the brothers that your father has adopted into your family, as the sisters that you have made for yourself, Lord Christ. Oh, Lord, we thank you and praise you. Lead us now, we pray, for it's in Christ's name. Amen. Keep that open. That'd be good to have on hand and refer back to as we go along. We are looking at this particular stipulation in verse 3. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, before there was a single atom of matter or any ray of light or even a jewel of energy, God determined that he would make a people for himself. Now, it's not because he needed to. It's not because he was lonely. He had eternally existed fully satisfied in himself. One God, three persons, perfect, whole, complete. The Trinity, in their unity, decreed that they would not only create, but that they would redeem to themselves a renegade people. That God would pursue a remnant of humanity who had betrayed their good creator and allied themselves with a deceitful enemy. Against all odds, they, the Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Ghost, they would rescue this people out of certain death to eternal life in communion together. As their creator and redeemer, this trophy bride would owe God her absolute and exclusive devotion to God for him to enjoy their praise of his delightful deliverance. God would be their king, and they would be his faithful subjects. We saw last week how God, in this relationship as king, used an ancient Near Eastern treaty as the format to provide the context for our understanding these ten words, or as they're sometimes referred to, the Decalogue, here in Exodus chapter 20. And today we come to what has been referred to as the prime directive in Star Trek speak, or you might call it the primary stipulation of the agreement if you're uh, feeling rather Hittite, or just the main thing. 
the main thing between the reigning sovereign and his vassal subjects. It is the essential heartbeat of the entire treaty. Every single stipulation flows out of this controlling requirement. Seven Hebrew words that spell out what must characterize God's covenant people more than anything else. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, as we explore this first stipulation of the treaty between God and his people, we will find that it combines duty and delight. Requirements and prohibitions, captivating desirability and steadfast wooing, faith and beauty. In this brief command, we'll see all of these points, and we're going to track with them in the outline that's in your order of worship. First, it is our duty to delight in Yahweh as our God and none other. Second, there is no one as captivatingly desirable as Yahweh. And third, it requires faith to believe in a beauty that we cannot see. Now, before we dive into the first point, it's important, in fact essential, that we keep in mind what we learned last week from the prologue. God there had identified himself as Israel's deliverer. He has already rescued them out of the land of Egypt, out of what he refers to as the house of slavery. These are not things that he gave them back in Egypt, but after he's already rescued them. They're free, and he is now taking them officially as his covenant people. And so whatever requirements he now communicates cannot be the condition for redemption out of slavery that he's already done. They're rightly understood in terms of house rules for the redeemed, for his visible people, Israel. These stipulations are not, and indeed cannot, be conditions for their freedom. Now, covenant faithfulness is later developed as a condition of their remaining with their sovereign in the promised land. But that won't come until Deuteronomy. And the second generation preparing to cross into the Jordan. But right now, they're just a few months out of their coming out of Egypt. They are here to formally sign and seal, if you were, this solemn agreement with God. There are no laws as such with an attached penal code, but, but rather God is getting at the heartbeat or the summary of everything that is to guide them as a people, knowing what it means to live as God's holy people with God himself. And that as far as their redemption, God has already accomplished it. He's done it. And so their obedience is not meriting anything, but rather demonstrating joyful obedience, devotion to the great and gracious God who has already delivered them. He's their God, and he declares himself their king 
for their good in contrast with the Pharaoh of Egypt who was their ruler so that he could get out of them everything that he wanted. God is not that kind of king. In fact, the the first 19 chapters of, of Exodus have gone in painstaking detail to show that God is a different kind of king than Pharaoh, that he's a different kind of God than the gods of Egypt. And he speaks with them directly. As their king, he could very easily send an intermediary. He's used Moses in that capacity lots of times. But on this particular thing, because it is so central, God doesn't hand it off to a mediator. He comes himself. He speaks to them directly. And then not only does he speak to them verbally directly, but he is the one who uses his finger to inscribe these things on the stone tablets. Now, with this in mind, let's look at the text. You shall have no other gods before me. The first thing that we see in this is that it is our duty to delight in Yahweh as our God and none other. The the responsibility attendant to this prohibition is impossible to get around. It is our duty. This is something that we're required to do. But again, we have a difficult time pairing duty and delight. Those are Those are difficult for us to put together. And yet, I think we get help here from John Piper. He's a a Baptist preacher out in in Minnesota. And and he loves the the Westminster Confession of Faith and the shorter and larger catechisms that that we use here at First Congregational Church of Woodstock. But he's, he's done a little bit of editing. You may be familiar with how he's just slightly altered the Westminster Shorter Catechism, question number one, and, and it's more the answer that he's, he's edited. We've used that lots of times here. The chief end of man is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And Piper just pushes that a little bit and says, no, it's really that the chief end of man is glorifying God by enjoying him forever. And I, and I think that's exactly right in terms of the heartbeat of what all of what we're seeing in these ten words. That again, it starts with what God has done and then gives us stipulations as the way in which we are to enjoy God. See, we tend to, to approach commandments or, or requirements as what's the least that I can do and get away with this. I always love that in, in classes. If you're ever a student in a class, don't ever ask this question of the professor. Is that going to be on the exam? F. For you, thank you, you can go your way. Right? That, that's the totally wrong approach. Why? Because our relationship with God is not just a cognitive dump. It, it's not, okay, here's all the doctrine that you need to know. Now, we need to know doctrine. But it's about relationship with him. And here's the thing is the world loves to put those two things in opposition to one another. You've even heard people say, well, it's not about the, the, the religion. It's about the relationship. Well, that may be true of every other religion on the planet, but it's not true of biblical Christianity. Because the religion of Christianity is about relationship with Jesus Christ. 
It is, that is the sum total of what this religion is about. And at its heart, we have these ten words. And so by understanding that this duty and delight are, are not enemies, but, but they actually work together. We get to delight in God through doing what he commands. Not only do we owe God our devotion, but this was always intended to be an exclusive relationship. He, God is, that, that is, deserves all of our affection, and we must not even entertain the idea of giving what we owe only to him to anyone else, to anything else. Scripture itself tells us, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words I command you today shall be on your heart. That's, that's the way that God spoke through Moses to echo what he says here directly. And Jesus says the same thing. We see it in Matthew's gospel. In chapter 22, when he's asked about the law, what's, what's the greatest commandment? He says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This love for God, this devotion to Yahweh, is to be absolute and exclusive. Throughout the scriptures, this is a central theme of biblical Christianity. And throughout the centuries, we find this at the heart of discipleship materials, of the way in which we train new Christians. This is what it means to walk in the ways of Yahweh. Now, one of the helpful developments of those kinds of materials, especially catechesis, that is the, the training by using questions and answers, is to break down commands that God gives us, both by what they require on the one hand and what they prohibit on the other. There is this positive and negative, what it requires, what we must do, as well as the things that we must not do. I love that in, in Luther's prayer that we use sometimes for, for collective confession, that, that we confess our sins of commission, right? Those things that we actually do that we're not supposed to do, as well as our sins of omission, what God says we're supposed to do and, and what we don't do, whether by honoriness or on purpose or even by neglect. And so this is something that has been used in, in discipleship materials. And so we find this uh, having to do with this commandment, that you shall have no other gods before you, dealt with in Westminster Larger Catechism, question 104. And that, that delineates nine different duties that are required by this prime directive. You shall have no other gods before you. I, I remember as, as a relatively uh, young person, you know, in, in college, I'd, I'd never heard any of these things. And I, and I discovered this while I was in, in college, and it was like, I was actually ticked that, that my parents, who raised me in, in the church, reading the scripture every day, had, had hidden these things from me. It's like, you've got, 
You've got that kind of treasure and you, you what, I had to turn 25 or something before I, I got these things? It was, there's amazing depth and resources that are there. But I'm sorry, I'll, I'll deal with that later, my counselor. So first, I need to, to give a brief word about uh, catechesis or, or discipleship. The Decalogue is included and explained in every major Christian religion on the planet. In terms of the, the big three, uh, Roman Catholic, Eastern Orthodox, and Protestant. All three have the Ten Commandments in our basic discipleship materials, our uh, statements of faith and catechisms. Now, I, I know we don't usually put a lot of stock in, in Roman Catholicism or, or the Eastern tradition, but I find it very revealing that the, in, in the Protestant Reformation, the Reformers didn't throw this out as they did many of the other things of Catholicism. It's very prominent, not just in the European reformers, but in most of the Protestant traditions. We, we find the Ten Commandments both listed and explained in our own Westminster heritage, but also in the Heidelberg, in the Baptist London Confession, in Luther's smaller catechism for children, as well as newer training materials like the New City Catechism that's come out with um, uh, um, Together for the Gospel, um, and as well as John Piper's update of the New Hampshire Baptist Confession and Catechism. My, my point is that so often we look at Christianity in the New Testament we're saved by grace, and, and then we just we don't even give a, a, a second thought about the law of God. And yet every biblically-based Christian expression of the church has the Ten Commandments front and center and, and follows this idea of what does this prohibit and what does it require. So what are some of the duties required in this prohibition against having other gods? The Westminster Larger Catechism puts it in these ways. We're obligated in the knowing and acknowledging of God to be the true God and our God. I think particularly for young people growing up that will say, yes, we believe in God. But do you know him not only as God, but as your God? We are required to, quote, worship and glorify God accordingly by Thinking, meditating, remembering, highly esteeming, honoring, adoring, choosing, loving, desiring, fearing God. I don't know about you, but that's, that's a lot of layers. And so my encourage, one of my encouragements for you this week is to take some time to get away from all the other stuff that you do. And, and just you could just take that one or any of these in the larger catechism and spend some time praying and meditating on that and saying, okay, God, I claim that you're my only God, that you're my God, and that I am exclusively devoted to you. How do I do in thinking about you, in meditating upon you, in remembering it, and just walk through that list and take some time in between to, to say, Holy Spirit, help me. Because there are things in here, I guarantee you, that have not even crossed your mind, let alone lodged in your heart. There, there are riches untold here. But it goes on. He says, we must 
give God all praise and thanks, yielding all obedience and submission to him with the whole man. These are just three of the nine requirements listed in the larger catechism. And and remember, these are not additions to. It's not like we're going and adding to the scriptures. These are all things that we're just looking at the scriptures and finding, look at what God requires here. Over here, look at what he requires. And, And assembling those together under the same heading of what does it mean to not have other gods before God. The other side of what it requires is what does this command forbid? It absolutely precludes any infidelity of any kind. In our thoughts, in our words, in our deeds, in our heart's desire. Now, we tend to think of infidelity in terms of marital relationship. And that's because God has given us marriage as a picture window into our relationship with God. But, but God is the one who called the prophet Hosea to take on a wife of harlotry so that the people could see their infidelity with God. In this regard, the larger catechism itemizes 21 different sins forbidden by this requirement. This includes both active participation in things like idolatry or as the confession says, in having or worshiping more gods than one, or any with or instead of the true God. And we talked last week about how, you know, we're not generally very prone to the sin of idolatry in terms of having a little image, a a little statue that, that we bow down to. That's not usually the way that we practice idolatry. Rather, instead, we tend to practice our idolatry of putting anything else besides God in the place that only God deserves. So it might be our job. It could be our hobbies. It it could be uh, holding on to bitterness and, and, and feeding it rather than cutting it out. It, it could be our reputation. It could be our family. It could be any number of things, that many of which are good God-given things, but if we substitute those in the place that only God deserves, that has become an idol. But it also includes negligence, things that the catechism talks about like ignorance, forgetfulness, misapprehensions, false opinions, unworthy and wicked thoughts of God. You say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait. Okay, I get the doing things that he tells us not to do, or even maybe neglecting to do the things that he commands, but ignorance? He's going to find us guilty of ignorance? Well, look at what the scripture says in Acts Chapter 17, as Paul is preaching to the pagans, he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked. But now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. You see, God will simply not stand for any what the confession talks about as hardness of heart, pride, presumption, carnal security, tempting God. He forbids all sin. All of it. Is, we don't even have to get to the other commandments. It's all in this particular first prime directive. 
because any disobedience of God is not giving what, him what he deserves as God. Do you see how that works? God is due our absolute and joyful obedience. And so it's not just disobeying him that is sin, but even if I do what he commands, but do it lackluster or, or with a lukewarmness of heart. Jesus says, I hate that. I'll spew that out of my mouth. So this week, let me encourage you to make use of the Take and Gathered Worship home that you have in your order of worship and the, the Westminster Larger Catechism to meditate on these things and ask the Holy Spirit to reveal ways that you have been neglecting these things that God would have us to do. And again, God doesn't want us to do things to make our life more difficult. He wants us to do these things because in them, we're growing closer to him, and that's where there's life. That's how we'll know joy and peace and rest, like we were talking about in the adult Sunday school class. So we've seen that God's prohibition against having other gods goes against the exclusive nature of our covenant agreement for God to be our God and for us to be his people. It also includes both requirements for which we're responsible as well as prohibitions for, from which we must abstain. Again, it is our duty to delight in Yahweh as our God and none other. But not only is it our duty, he's so worth it. There, there is no one as captivatingly desirable as Yahweh. What, what I want you to see is, is that while we're obligated to cherish God for all of his acts of loving kindness and, and for all the beauty and wonder of his perfect character and godliness, it really is a delightful privilege for us to be able to do so. He's all glorious. He's worthy of our everlasting praise. We're just going to take a few moments to, to briefly cover these three characteristics of God. Characteristics about him in which we should rightly be enthralled with God. His perfection, his completeness, and his satisfaction. First, consider his perfection. He is perfectly beautiful. In fact, beyond all imagining, Psalm 27, 4 says it this way, One thing I have asked of the Lord, that will I seek after that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. Let me ask you, when was the last time that that characterized your quiet time? When was the last time that you put everything else on hold and just gazed upon the beauty of the Lord? Oh, wait, uh, uh, Sorry, I got I got to check this just a minute. Right, we get distracted. We have so many other things that compete for our attention, and I'm here to tell you that's no accident. The evil one loves to keep us busy. But let me also ask, when was the last time that you stopped and gazed upon the beauty of something that you want? Oh, this fall weather. I'm starting to think about those leaves coming. And you start 
daydreaming about. And they, oh, okay, right, I got to get back to work. Why, why does that come so easily for us? To daydream about, to meditate upon, to think about, to gaze at things that seem so lovely to us, but that are here and gone, where God is perfectly beautiful. Not only is he perfectly beautiful, he's perfectly glorious. Isaiah gives us this incredible peer into the throne room of God. It says, In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood seraphim. That's another word for angels. And each of these angels had six wings. And with two they covered their face, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to the other and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. This picture of an all-encompassing glory. Of the wonder of God. That there are There are angels that their full-time, 24-7 responsibility and joy is to to fly before the Lord and declare His praise. Or, when not only were the angels declaring His praise, but when God Himself, hearing Moses, who had just gone through this horrific thing of giving the people the commandments and only to find them reveling in idolatry, Moses goes back up to the Lord. And he can hardly stand. He says, Lord, just show me your glory. And the Lord didn't have the angel declare his glory. It says the Lord himself. He passed before Moses and he himself declared the Lord. The Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. And faithfulness. Oh, to hear such beautiful words from the mouth of our Lord. It was so overwhelming. It was so absolutely gorgeous that God had to put Moses in the cleft of the rock and hold his hand over it and then just allow him to see the barest little glimpse of God's glory going before him lest Moses be vaporized on the spot. Oh, beloved, he is perfectly faithful, beautiful, and glorious. But also to meditate upon his completeness. Every one of us is not only imperfect and limited, but, but we've all got strengths and weaknesses. Don't you always hate that in an interview? Well, tell us one of your weaknesses. I'd rather stick an ice pick in my forehead. What, what, how is there a good answer for that? And so we learn you know, how, to, how to spin it, right? Well, take one of your strengths and then spin it around to sound really humble, right? There's no spin with God. He can't answer the question of a weakness because he doesn't have any. 
I love these these things where in personality tests, you know, they'll 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 have some you know business leader who says, oh well, we got to do personality tests. Okay, everybody is just well, I'm a this, I'm a that, I'm a you know, and then people will say, oh well, you know, clearly Moses is a DIS, blah blah blah, you know, and then and then people will say, oh well, Jesus, he was clearly a blah 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 blah. No, he wasn't, because all those personality things. They're talking about your strength and your corresponding weakness. Jesus doesn't have any. Is God an extrovert or an introvert? No, he's God. He's complete. He's perfect. Us in relationships, we have all these insecurities. You know, have, have you ever been counseling a friend who's struggling in a relationship? And they just do something, and you go, oh, why did you do that? And you go, well, you know them well enough to know. Oh, they did that because they were insecure. They, they were uncertain, and so their uncertainty led them to do something that in, in the light of day, they would go, well, no, that doesn't make any sense. God doesn't have that problem. He's perfectly complete. Psalm 84 says, oh, Lord of hosts, hear my prayer. Give ear, O God of Jacob. Behold our shield, O God, look on the face of your anointed. For a day in your courts is better than a thousand elsewhere. I would rather be a doorkeeper in the house of my God than dwell in the tents of the wicked. For the Lord is our sun and shield. The Lord bestows favor and honor. No good thing does he withhold from those who walk uprightly. O Lord of hosts, blessed is the one who trusts in you. See, God doesn't give based on insecurities. He, he, doesn't, he doesn't act according to character imperfections. He's perfect. He's complete. And every other creature, because he's not a creature but creator, every creature is incomplete. But God is entirely complete. Ephesians says it this way, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory... He may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length, height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Oh, beloved, Yes, it's our duty to, de to delight in God. But if we just will believe what is true about him, it, it's not a difficult duty. That, that's why God is able to say, my yoke is not burdensome. Come to me, all you who weary. Take my yoke upon you. I will give you rest. See, God is complete, and he is beautifully, wondrously complete. And not only that, but he will make us complete. Revel also in his satisfaction. God is forever satisfied with himself. God never has a time where he thinks, oh, you know, I'd like to do that one over. That means of you, too, when he created you. He didn't, he didn't make any mistakes. He is always satisfied with himself. And the more that we understand that, the more that that frees us. 
He truly loves us. He knows us as no one else can possibly know us. And he's perfectly satisfied in us because of Christ. While other things, these idols that we chase, can provide temporary satisfaction, God alone satisfies. We see that picture, I just can't get over this, the picture in, in Ruth, and I know I've been talking about Ruth for a long time, but uh, there's, there's that part in, in Ruth where, where Boaz comes to her and, and brings her in for lunch and has her sit there with, with the workers and, and he blesses her and, and gives her a meal. And, and in that meal, she's, she's not only able to enjoy the fellowship at the table, but she, the scripture says that she ate and was satisfied and had many leftovers. Those leftovers, remember, she takes to, to Naomi to, for, for dinner. But it's fascinating to me that in the, in the Greek of, of Ruth, the, the Septuagint, the words there and the order, and the, the idea there of eating and being satisfied and having a, a huge amount of surplus of leftover is the same way that it describes the feeding of 5,000 by Jesus that's in each of the Gospels. There are very few things that are in all four Gospels. But the feeding of 5,000 is one of them. And there's that same pattern that God meets their need, that they eat and are satisfied. And there's a huge bounty left over. It's an image, it's a picture that God paints for us of his satisfaction in himself, but he also makes us to be satisfied in him as well. There is in the, the musical Hamilton this this song that Hamilton sings, I will, be, I will never be satisfied. And he's, he's using it to try to, to court this, this young woman, and he says, you will never be satisfied. And, and that, that strikes, that resonates with her. What is this that he's talking about? Because the reality is, the reason why he can use that, the reason why that song connects with everybody listening to it, is because we all know that restlessness. We all know that deep down, even, even after our best moments, it's like, is that it? I remember a number of, of different sports players who, whether it's football or, or soccer or gymnasium, it doesn't matter what, what it is, but they reach the highest heights. They, they win the Super Bowl. They get the gold medal. They, they have the crowning accomplishment. They've won as much as you can win. And several athletes at that pinnacle of success have said, is that it? That's all? But you see, the God of the Bible, we never have that with him. Yes, there's, there's a longing for more. Yes, give me more of you. But the image of God taking us to himself is, is that for heaven's eternity, we will delight in God and be satisfied. But you see, our trouble is, is that it's hard to believe in something, even something like beauty, that we cannot see. Listen to, to Miriam as she sings the wonder of seeing God at work. 
says, Miriam, the prophetess, the sister of Aaron, took a tambourine in her hand, and all the women went out after her with tambourines and dancing. And Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he has triumphed gloriously. The horse and his rider he has thrown into the sea. You see, they saw a glimpse. They caught a glimpse of God at work, of God's power and glory. And so they rejoiced in that. But then what about Monday morning? Where is he? Now, they were there. They could see the cloud of, of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. But he's, he's not as close as he was when he was delivering us. Have you had those experiences? Of, well, man, I felt so close to Jesus yesterday. But today, it feels like I'm talking to the ceiling. It's his invisible attributes namely his eternal power and divine nature, that have been clearly perceived, God tells us in Romans. Or we have the model of Moses. He, it tells us in Hebrews 11 that he considered the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward by faith. He left Egypt, not being afraid of the anger of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. See, Moses could see Pharaoh, but he couldn't see, except for just a moment in the burning bush, in the cleft of the rock. This is the difficulty of the walk of faith. And God, in his mercy, has given us Christ as the fullness of God on display. Philip was struggling with the same thing when he said to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said, to him, have I been with you so long and yet you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his work. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else, believe on account of the works themselves. And that's where we find us, isn't it? We are to believe in Christ by the works themselves that we have written down in the scriptures. And it's here that we find God and his beauty. Colossians 1 says it this way, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Jesus all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things. And in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. See, Jesus keeps the law for us. When God says, you shall have no other gods before us, Jesus is the one who does that. He keeps from any of what God has prohibited, and he does everything that God requires. He is faithful in every thought, word, and deed, and every inclination of his heart to love his Father affectionately, and exclusively. 
As, as we noted in the prologue, these stipulations are not requirements for us to keep in order to win God's favor. But they're our duty for God, as God's people to joyously follow as those who have been redeemed. For the Israelites, that meant demonstrating faith in the coming Redeemer. For us, likewise, it entails submission to Christ who has come. Jesus is the one who says that we need to repent. But what does that mean? It means acknowledging our infidelity, of agreeing with God. You're right. I haven't loved you and you alone. We must confess this and humble ourselves to pursue his way of reconciliation and not our own. Rebellion against God deserves the death penalty, not just in this life, but forever. As we read in God's word, the wages of sin is death. That's why Jesus came to rescue us. That's why he went to the cross. He served as our sacrifice. And now is the time for us to recognize what he's done and to trust him with the whole of our lives. The Father has already given his approval through raising Christ from the dead for all of us who trust in him. The Holy Spirit remains waiting, ready to come into the heart of everyone who's willing. Now, many of you have heard that lots of times. But if you have not bowed before God and trusted him, please do so. Don't wait. This is the hour that God has provided for all to believe. Come to Jesus in this moment. Give him your life. Give him your mind and your heart and your soul and all of your exclusive allegiance and loyalty. I'm waiting for another offer. I'm waiting to see if I really want to do that. The reality is, is you may not have tomorrow to decide that. God's brought you here that you might hear and believe. He is due all of our loyalty. Please, let us give it to him joyfully. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, thank you that you don't leave us to guess what it means to love you faithfully. But you've told us in your word what, both what you require and what you forbid. Lord, thank you that you love us so. And you have rescued us from death that we might love you as well. We pray that you would lead us and direct us, for we pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Well, let's stand together as we sing his praises. Hymn number two, O Worship the King.
the humbler creation, though feeble their lays, with true adoration shall lisp to your praise. Are you lisping? It's delighting in him to rejoice in his goodness that we get to do. It's simply unbelievable that the God of all the universe would engage and even invite us into it, let alone pay his entire life so that we might have that privilege. Oh, Lord God, thank you. We praise you and give you thanks. We ask that you would receive our praise because, Lord Christ, of what you have done. And so now we ask that you would bless your people as we go to serve you, to love you, to obey you in all the life that you have given for us. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Please be seated for just a moment. stay for some refreshments uh, through the door here and to the left and uh, take a few moments to, to talk to somebody that you don't know and uh, just greet them and welcome them. Uh, that would be lovely. Thank you so much. Go in peace. <laughs>